making, making contact, making, 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 making contact. I'm Laura Flynn, and you're listening to Making Contact. The 2015 climate talks in Paris closed with nearly 200 countries agreeing to combat climate change. The primary goal of the agreement is to prevent global temperatures from rising to levels that would unleash catastrophic climate-induced disasters. Stronger, more destructive storms, longer droughts and heat waves, and an increased risk of fires are just a few of the consequences that come along with climactic fluctuations. The Paris Agreement has been called historic, particularly for the U.S. It represented a departure from years of denying the eventuality of climate change. But is it enough? On this edition of Making Contact, we explore the social and psychological costs of climate change that are already affecting people and the weight of the world's inaction. In 2012, Superstorm Sandy ripped through coastal communities along the northeastern United States, Canada, and the Caribbean, killing an estimated 147 people. Outside of the southern states, Sandy ranks as the deadliest cyclone in the U.S. since 1972, and it's also one of the costliest. The Rockaway Peninsula in Queens, New York, was one community devastated by Sandy. Making Contact's Andrew Stelzer brings us this story about how residents are recovering and rebuilding in a new age of climate change. On the train, headed out to Brooklyn now, on the way to Queens, going to meet my friend Nikki Stanley to go to her old neighborhood, Far Rockaway, Queens, to see what's happened or hasn't happened a year after Hurricane Sandy. There's been a lot of talk about bringing the Rockaways back. So post-Sandy, one of the issues, the electricity went out. So even though the side of Rockaway that I grew up on was not flooded, like it, the flooding went down, there was no infrastructure. There were no subways. There was no lighting. Like people were like forced to just not, it was just very hard to move around once the sun went down. So that was the issue on my side of Rockaway. Um, whereas you'll see on the other side of Rockaway, the issue, issue was literally the fact that the flooding wiped out stores people were not able to go back home. So it's just depending on which part of the peninsula you're on would determine the issue that you have. There's some construction going on. They're building some oh. fancy looking. That's the beach. That's a big deal right now. So when I saw Rockaway featured in the New York Times as the New Hamptons, I almost choked, literally. I almost choked on my uh, whatever it was I was drinking at the time. Because that's where we're at. Like It's being featured every summer now for the past few years as the destination of the summer. But So this is 59th. My dad actually lives on 61st. We'll go down his block. He lives three houses away from the beach. So he refused to evacuate on Sandy, on, uh, during Sandy. And so he literally stood on his, his little porch and just watched cars float away, 
watch his own car float away, saw the water coming down from the beach. Like he had just refused to leave. And, and my mom's house, like she got four feet of water um, on this side. And as many people did, four to five feet of water, people with basement apartments lost everything. The friend who stayed with me, that's what, that was his situation. So all these houses were flooded. Like all these houses have basements. So flooding is an issue here, having nothing to do with the superstorm, but more so with the infrastructure. Growing up, this is my street. There were times I couldn't go to school because the water was so high, because it was a really strong rain. So this is my house to the right, and it looks like my mom and my sister are home because I saw the cars. Um, and to the left, that was my elementary school up till third grade. I literally just got to walk across the street. Hello. Hi. This is my friend Andrew from high school. Hi, Hi Andrew. How are, How are you? Good, good. Hello, you remember me? Uh, maybe, maybe. You look like Nikki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I probably met you a couple times. I would say a lot of help came in. Lots of help, lots of help. People have um, opened their pockets, opened their time. We did get a lot of help. With regards to FEMA, they have helped, but I think they could have done a little more. But we are grateful here in the Rockaways, considering the state of the place after Sandy. I'm so grateful that lots of people have been able to move back into their homes like me. And um, even though there's still work to be done, at least we have a shelter because their people still cannot get into their homes. What about the whole issue of climate change and future storms? Do you think they should be building differently for the future here? Do you think if it's even safe to live on the peninsula long term? I think like, like every other place uh, that has um, surrounded by water, I don't think we're any different from those places, like the islands or wherever you go for vacation. Yes, there's a climate change. Yes, places that never had storms will be having storms. It was predicted, and this was expected because I think about five years ago, they started kicking you off the insurance companies. I had Allstate for both homes, and Allstate just kicked me off because, and I couldn't get any other insurance, Geico, none of them, because of the, I forgot the term they use, elevation or whatever, flood zone. Oh, they would yeah, not, actually. so they expected a storm. They knew it was coming. They talked about it, and yet they kicked you off, so they wouldn't have the liability. I mean, some people have suggested we shouldn't, be building more on places not only in the rockaways but like you said on coastal areas of islands or the whole coastal mm -hmm. they say it's you know the storms are going to get worse and worse that's what they say and it is expected so what <laughs> you live by faith um i mean we have lived here how many years 30 30 something years quite comfortably there are people who were born here grew up here grandchildren, everything, and, and no place. We don't know what's going to happen. It's a nice place to live. 
And with all that the storm did, people are still wanting to buy. Now is the opportunity to buy the homes, and people are seizing that opportunity. That there are people who say, well, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm leaving. So then your house has been damaged, whatever. So that means you cannot sell it at the rate you would have gotten if there wasn't a storm. So people are seizing that opportunity to acquire real estate. They're knocking at the doors. Um, this was where FEMA set up. So when um, Governor Cuomo had given like the speech and like he thanked the pastor with this pastor here, and this is where they have, have pictures of like the trucks, the army trucks coming in. It was kind of surreal. I really felt like it was like post-war zone, like to see army trucks coming to set up, and then they set up like the heating tanks. But I'm like New Orleans, and they went through it. This is you just never think that it's gonna happen to you, and then like this is not the South. This is New York. You figure this is New York. Like we are prepared for everything and every anything, and we're just totally not. What do you think in terms of climate change they should be doing out here? Well, they should prepare. I mean, I feel like with many things, no one wants to budget for these things because you don't want to spend money unnecessarily, and it's almost like making a decision to just focus on what's in front of you. But this was so, this was so um, climactic that at this point they have to take it seriously, and we need to budget resiliency issues or resiliency infrastructure or, um, you know, we have to dedicate resources to it. What about the idea of we shouldn't build near the beach? Shouldn't build near the beach. Some people, um, some people say. Well, I think that's not, well, should we be building more? I don't know that we should be building more. I don't think we should be building more. I think we should just be trying to protect what's there because um, these communities already exist. Like, what are you, you can't demolish a whole, community at this point that has been but as my mom had said has been here for years and years and years and years but you should work to improve it but should we be t taking advantage of you know our coastal areas just for profit because really that's what it boils down to I don't think so and there are a lot of people in these communities right now that rather than spending money on building why aren't we spending to improve infrastructure for people who are already there because what happens is the buildings that get re the ones that get built now, they'll be building better. They'll be built stronger. They'll be built smarter. But then what about the people that are already in the communities? Like, what is our responsibility to those people? On November 8, 2013, the Philippines was hit with the strongest storm ever to make landfall in recorded history. Typhoon Haiyan left a wake of death and destruction in its path. More than 6,000 people died or went missing, and hundreds of thousands more were left grappling with the trauma of the changing climate's disastrous incarnation. Aurora Almendral reports on the psychological impact of natural disasters. I'm Fire Officer Juan Zardos V. Abela uh, from the Bureau of Fire Protection. Abela is 27 years old. He's a firefighter in Tacloban, a city of 200,000 people that bore the brunt of Typhoon Haiyan. Abela bandaged the wounded. He collected the bodies of the dead. 
eternal rest grant unto your soul and may you rest in peace. Saying a small prayer over each of the hundreds of corpses he pulled from the rubble and marshlands for months after the storm. Abela is from the city and was on the front line of the recovery after the storm. He knows that some injuries aren't visible. Isang babae, tapos meron siyang in the coastal area. Merong refrigerator dun. There was one woman, Abela says, who climbed inside a refrigerator floating in the bay. She was going to a different city, she told him. She was there, paddling in the water, inside an empty refrigerator, her two children with her. Bata. Meron dun, ano, violent na patient. Tapos, yung mga testimonial din ng mga neighbors, anon. One man became violent, Abela says. His neighbor said he wasn't like that before. He'd become unhinged. That was it. There was a self-care deficit, Abela says. And he was disoriented. For each of the thousands who died, many more survived them. When a natural disaster of this scale strikes, the effects of trauma can be nearly as widespread as the destruction. Abigail Gewertz, a psychologist at the University of Minnesota, says the trauma can still feel very real even after the danger has passed. Once the traumatic event is over, um, we don't stop having the bodily reactions that we had just because the event's over, because the event was so overwhelming to us that it, it, it stuck, right? It's like a record that keeps playing and playing and playing. The sight of a child that looks like one's own drowned daughter from a distance. The smell of rotting garbage in an alley that reminds a survivor of the stench of decomposing bodies. Or, as many people in Tacloban told me, just the sound of rain could bring back the terror they felt on that day. They trigger the te- the the fast heartbeat, the terrible panic, the feeling that you're going to drown, the feeling that something terrible is going to happen. Your traumatic experiences can also manifest in nightmares or flashbacks where you suddenly have a thought, it comes into your mind, or you see something and it, you, know, you, you flash back to that moment and then you react. You can't control how you react. After a major natural disaster, resources are rightly concentrated on feeding people, ensuring their safety and shelter, and rebuilding. But even after the debris is cleared and wounds are healed, there's much less focus on the mental recovery of a traumatized population. You don't feed a person, the consequences are obvious. What happens if you don't provide psychological support to these people who have just gone through a mass, mass well, you, Right, you risk long-term compromise. So, so when you're talking about significant psychological impairment, you're talking about people who can't, who can't work, you're talking about people who can't maintain relationships, who can't effectively look after children, who can't um, contribute to the economy, who require... Uh, you know, significant resources from the mental health system, if there is one, who are much more vulnerable to drug use and alcohol use. You know, that's the cost of not paying attention to psychological well-being. When trauma is that widespread and not properly addressed, it could change a city. The countries that are the most vulnerable to climate change-related disasters are in the developing world, where mental health infrastructure can be pretty thin on the ground. Countries like the Philippines only have one psychologist for every 700,000 people. 
it's a paltry sum compared to rich countries, which average more than 25 times that number. They can't address the mass mental health needs of a wide swath of the population. But psychologists aren't the only ones who can intervene after a disaster, according to the World Health Organization. To reach more of the traumatized population, other public workers, like the firefighters of Tacloban, can also help. Sa psychological first aid, so kung paano mag-deal. Psychological first aid training, says Abela, taught us how to deal with the mental side of the victims. Paano, paano mo sila tutulungan by just um, listening to them, by just giving your services to them. Abela and the firefighters of Tacloban were trained by the WHO to address trauma after natural disasters. They were taught to recognize distress, listen to a person without pressuring them to talk, and to help them find opportunities for further social support, as well as strategies to avoid making the trauma worse. It turns out the key to addressing large-scale trauma after a devastating natural disaster like Typhoon Haiyan is to disseminate information so that people know how to help and support each other. Abigail Gewirtz says the tools are there, but they're not being applied. I think there are brilliant people doing it when it comes to uh, physical health, but I think public health kind of falls down when it comes to mental health. Um, And we know a lot about how to effectively disseminate healthcare messages, right? And I think we could do the same in mental health care, and we're not yet there. Addressing mental health after disasters is at the early stages. Abela didn't receive his training until almost a year after the storm. Countries like the Philippines, that are pummeled by one disaster after another, are leading the way to developing a psychosocial support system for populations traumatized by natural disaster. I ask Abela if he feels prepared for when the next disaster comes. Confidently, um, yes. Yeah. Um, not only psychological first aid, but... Um, parang, um, yung spirit namin, saka fighting spirit our spirit, namin, he says, our fighting spirit tulong, is ready to help. Still, Filipinos will need much more than their own stores of physical and emotional resilience to survive a changing climate. A recent report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change conclusively linked climate change to the kind of unprecedented extreme weather event that Typhoon Haiyan was. Filipinos will need the rest of the world, particularly the people living in the United States and China, to help slow down the march towards warmer seas, stronger storms, and a cruel cycle of trauma and grief. For Making Contact, I'm Aurora Almendral, Tacloban, Philippines. After the break, I'll take you to a small mountain town in California that faced one of the state's deadliest fires in history. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We were actually finishing, a, my wife and I were finishing a three-year project building a deck, a 1600 square foot deck, and I turned off my power tools because I heard explosions. They sound like shotgun blasts. 
So I ran a couple blocks up to the corner of the road and I saw the fire coming under the canopy of the trees. And that was pretty close. At that point, it was about four or five blocks away. Stefan Wasik's house of 40 years sits at the top of Cobb Mountain, where a fire was quickly spreading on the afternoon of September 12, 2015. And so I ran down the hill to wake up one neighbor because he works graveyard, and that took a while, and I ran down to the people at the end of the road and got them together and out, and then we ran back and going to grab a few things, and we um, escaped with the coals on our back, kept stopping, pulling over on 175, watching the fire chase us down the hill to Middletown. Driving down the two-lane highway 175, you can still see the charred remains of the hillside closely hugging the road. So close, you can imagine the flames turning the road into a tunnel of fire. Before I met Wasik at the Lake County Long-Term Recovery Task Force meeting, I was sitting at Mugshot Espresso down in Middletown. Everybody walking into the quaint coffee shop seemed to know each other, one by one, swapping their fire survival stories. A man in his mid-30s with shoulder-length dusty blonde hair walked in with his dog. Jeff Keenan was his name. A coworker from uh, Harbin Hot Springs came racing down my driveway, blaring his horn. And the first thing I noticed when I stepped out to see what was wrong was uh, the smoke swirling in the wind. Um, and he said that I needed to evacuate immediately. Harbin had just burned to the ground. That's where Keenan works. At the time, Erica Peterson, a barista at Mugshot Espresso, was also trying to assess the fire. And I was freaking out, trying to figure out where the fire was coming from because we've had a few of them this year, so it wasn't a surprise drill. And then the ash started falling, and the ash got bigger, and then it started becoming flaming debris, and then it started becoming flaming chunks of tree and chunks of house dropping down on us. Keenan was preparing to evacuate his home. Um, as I was pulling out, I saw one aerial tanker go in and drop retardant on the house. Um, but by that point, you could see all the smoke streaming over the hill, and it was a massive amount of smoke. The wind was really hot and really strong. Um, I stopped off at the high school, um, and uh, maybe within two minutes after stopping, uh, the fire breached the ridge. Um, it moved incredibly fast. It uh, dropped fire tornadoes down the ridge and on top of my house, <laughs> which was a strange thing to watch. So it looked like a science fiction landscape with a dust storm occurring at the same time as there's flames literally in the air. It was like a tornado of fire everywhere around you. It was very scary as I was getting my child out. She grabbed a hold of me, looked up in the air as the flames were all around us and went, wow. Fire literally ch chased me as fast as a vehicle can drive up the mountain. You can't see where it is because it's everywhere. So trying to escape it, we just kind of picked the darkest place and drove in that direction and managed to get to the highway and made it out on two flat tires. Known as the Valley Fire, it's considered the third most destructive fire in California history, according to Cal Fire. Burning for over a month, the fire engulfed more than 118 square miles, nearly 2,000 structures, mostly homes, and killed four people. Four years of drought intensified California's 2015 fire season. 
there were 1,700 more fires in 2015 than the five-year average. In response, Governor Jerry Brown said action is needed to address the climate challenges we're faced with. Look, there's been fires in California from time immemorial. We know that. Uh, but we also know that the temperatures uh, are rising. The annual mean temperature is going up. And that then, when combined with years of drought, means that the conditions are, are worse. They're drier, and therefore these fires are acting more aggressively, more unpredictably. So we have to do something about it. El Nino rain and snowstorms have reduced the state's fire risk for the time being, according to the fire agency, National Interagency Coordination Center, or NICC. But NICC says one wet year won't likely end the drought, and the state remains cautious, extending water conservation regulations into 2016. So in a time where we're beginning to see natural disasters intensified by climate change, how people cope and recover can give us a sense of what's to come. Peterson recalls what it's been like for her after the fire. Um, nightmares about being in the fire and burning, of course. And PTS, whenever I see smoke, I have that moment of, oh my gosh, there's another fire. Whenever I see the right color of orange and yellow, it actually brings it up. So I'm sure everybody knows what that's like around here. Lake County Behavioral Health, how can I help you? Hi, can I speak to Manuel Orozco? Sure, hold on, please. Thank you. Accounting Manuel. We, we realized that there would be a need within the shelters as the people were evacuating to those particular shelters. So after that, what ended up happening was is that we were looking toward PTSD aspects of the uh, event in general, mostly because uh, as we were learning more and more from the shelters about the type of uh, evacuation that occurred and the fact that people were trapped and so on and so forth from into traffic and everything like that and escaping from the fire in general, um, that we should be establishing a type of uh, training and also just basic guidelines in order to be able to promote a resilience-based model. Orozco says reducing PTS or post-traumatic stress and building long-term resilience are priorities that have come out of responding to several other major fires the community faced in 2015. Peterson lists them off. There was the Rocky Fire, the Jerusalem Fire, there was a structure fire near my house, the Valley Fire, the infamous Valley Fire, and then Hoffaker Lane even caught on fire for a little bit to the point where you want to talk about after emotions, my man, he couldn't even sleep at night. He would wake up and go out and look at the horizon and be like, are we on fire? As more time has passed since the wake of the Valley Fire, the county's behavioral health response has shifted to working throughout the community. Through a project called California Hope, trained counselors go wherever people are at, bars, cafes, senior centers, grocery stores, and so on. They provide crisis counseling, suicide prevention, and connect people to services. I asked Peterson if she has sought out any counseling to process her feelings after the fire. Um, no, I'm too busy of a woman. I'm just having to get through it. But um, I talk a lot to people in my job, which works. So I've kind of counseled myself and others. A lot of talking with this job. So a lot of talking to people who have been through similar and not and worse. So. Orozco from Behavioral Health says that is just as important. Actually, the more people share their stories and, you know, and just basically listen to each other and provide um, peer-to-peer support, the more resilient people get. 
as a result of that. So it is important for people to kind of come out there, share their stories if they can, or if they, if they are comfortable in doing so. By doing so, it kind of builds the community. Jeff Keenan again. You know, I, I think everybody's got their own way of coping. Uh, definitely, there has been a, um, I think, a sense of community that a lot of people have relied on. Um, you know, the, the, because it is such a shared trauma. Keenan says the outpouring of community support from near and far is like a life raft. It's essential to recovering and rebuilding. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Do you have a story about climate change in your community to share? Send it to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. For more information about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.